Welcome back to All About Apprenticeships, brought to you by Checkertrade.com. I'm Georgie Frost, and whether you're an employer, a parent, or you're thinking about doing an apprenticeship yourself, we've got you covered in this series. Over the next 10 episodes, we'll be discussing everything from the apprenticeship levy, skills gaps, the green agenda, what businesses need to know before taking on an apprentice, and much, much more. Coming up in this episode, we're talking about training providers, who they are, what they actually do, and how do we know they're giving the best possible training? The sector is pretty resilient, pretty stable, uh, and certainly from our perspective as an inspectorate, uh, is generally pretty good. We've got lots and lots of apprenticeship providers that deliver a really good experience for students. You've got to have the learner at the heart of everything you do. Apprenticeships is hard. It, it's a challenging world and um, it, it is exciting. A few employers were saying, well, I've got a levy to spend, how can I spend it? Um, which is kind of the wrong question. Um, what you should be saying is, how can I use my apprenticeship levy to fill the skills gaps that I've got? Jill Whitaker is the CEO of HIT Training, the market-leading expert apprenticeship and training provider for the UK's hospitality and catering industry. Kate Taylor is the Apprenticeship Operations Manager at City and Guilds Electrical Training. And to fill us in on quality control, we've got Paul Joyce, Ofsted's Deputy Director for Further Education and Skills, and Richard Pemble, a Specialist Advisor in Policy, Quality and Training at Ofsted. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us. Jill, to you first, very broadly, if you would, what does a training provider actually do? And how do you at HIT Training work with learners? Okay, well, we've been doing this for quite a long time. So I'm sure all training providers do things slightly differently. Our modus operandi is that we work with employers um, to provide them with the skills training that they need for their staff. So that's about getting the staff up to speed and as efficient as they possibly can be to make the business better from the employer's perspective. From the learner's perspective, what they're doing is they're building their skills to be able to um, make sure that they can be fully employed, be as good as they can at their job, get paid properly. And for many of them, it's a career, um, a long-term career prospect. So they're looking at potentially one, two, maybe three apprenticeships that will take them all the way from a beginner in their job to all the way through to complete expert and, and leader in that, um, that sphere. Give me some solid examples, if you would, about exactly what you do to achieve those aims. Exactly. Okay, so a new employer approaches us and says, we'd really like to take on an apprentice, but we're not sure what we do. So we go and talk to the employer and we'll undertake what we call a training needs analysis so we can understand where the skills gap are within their business. And then we'll advise them on the sort of apprenticeships that might be suitable for them. At the same time, we'll look at the staff they've got already, because not all apprentices are going to be brand new to that employer. Some people will have been there for for weeks, months, or even years, Um, but an apprenticeship might be suitable to fill a skills gap for an individual. And equally, we'll help them. If they want to bring in people from the outside, we'll put them in touch with the right people to make that happen. Kate, you're the Apprenticeship Operations Manager at City and Guilds Electrical Training. In your view, what sets a good training provider apart from a not so good one? Um, quality. So a c- clear curriculum and delivery plans with solid intent, really. Um, sector specialist trainers who can implement learning effectively and by demonstrating positive behaviours. Uh, 
so much. Um, innovative resources, training that stretches and challenges the learner's knowledge, um, individualized learning and positive and regular interactions with their trainers, transparent and supportive senior management team. For staff progression, staff support, along with um, staff CPD recognition throughout. You spoke there about individualised training. How do you make sure that your training is tailored to different apprentices? I mean, sort of older, perhaps, career yeah. changers, young people? Yeah, we're lucky here at um, Sitting Guild's electrical training, really, because we've got um, a, a, kind of like a four-step uh, model in place. So... Um, what that means is we cater for the apprentices new to the electrical industry or those that have, you know um, that are changing their careers. So for some learners that we have come on board, like I said, absolutely brand new to the industry, they would come in at a step one and follow that straight through to the step four. And then we have other learners that have um, been on our commercial courses and done some of the um, uh, separate qualifications and then find employment with an electrical um, employer and then they get put on the apprenticeship so we'll RPL what they've already got and then bespoke the rest of the program for them so they'll come in at a different step. It works really well with how the cohorts are because um, the age range is so uh, widespread that it helps with peer interaction and um, for the younger peers building their confidence and personal development. It's great to see them all working at different ages and, and um, you know, in the workshops. Gil, you were graded good by Ofsted. What did your assessment give you to work on? Five times we've been graded good Sorry, by Ofsted. Jill, let, so me, let me repeat that, Jill. That five times and you're holding your hand up just for emphasis there. Five times. Okay. Yeah. Why? And uh, what did your assessment give you to work on? I think, I mean, the, the, the inspection regime has changed more than once since we first had our first inspection. We started here in 2006, so uh, with a five-year plan, which is ongoing, um, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, we uh, what, what, what is good about here? I, I guess all of the things that Kate said, because I would totally, you know, absolutely bang on. And, and the new inspection regime that our, our pals at Ofsted have, is great because it is based upon, um, you know, what what is your intent? What you're trying to do? What is the impact of what you were trying to do? And how have you implemented it? And then this, this it's kind of a circular thing. So that really that's really quite a helpful model in 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 giving you a, a framework to work around. So um, to become a good or outstanding training provider. So what what is good about HIT? We really all of our staff come from industry. So we don't take on teachers who've got theoretical only knowledge um, and then send them out to be tutors. All of our staff uh, from the hospitality industry, our chefs are proper chefs. Um, they didn't just go to college and then come to us to be teachers. Um, our front of house people have got a broad experience in working front of house. And we've got lots of specialisms within that as well. So whilst it doesn't really fit hospitality specifically, one of the programmes we run is in brewing. Um, all of our brewing tutors are brewers. They all came to us directly from the breweries. Um, and we've sp we spend time upskilling them to turn them into dual professionals. They remain professional 
and have to keep up their continued professional development in their original um, qualifications, but they also are professional teachers, tutors and assessors. And I think that's that's absolutely critical to all of this. What, what we understand from the employer perspective is we, we absolutely get their businesses. We know what it is that they need. When we do a training needs analysis, we're not going in, it's not one of my sales guys going in there and saying bye, bye, bye. We're actually, we're sending in a, an industry professional to talk to them, to speak, to understand what their challenges are around business. That's the first question we ask. What's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, you have, people don't do training for the sake of it. it, it that, that, that just wouldn't work. There was a bit of, I mean, when the apprenticeship levy first came in, there was there was a little bit of weirdness around behaviours. That there's a, a few employers were saying, well, I've got a levy to spend, how can I spend it? Um, which is kind of the wrong question. Um, what you should be saying is, how can I use my apprenticeship levy to fill the skills gaps that I've got? So I say, I say that the real that real strength is about that genuine understanding of that industry. All of our tutors have been where the person they're training is now, and they are where some of them are where that that person wants to be in the future. Um, it wouldn't be uh, unreasonable to say that training providers do occasionally end up with people they've trained years and years ago coming and knocking on the door and saying, actually, now, now's my time to give something back to the industry I absolutely love. Can I come and work for you and become a become a trainer? So, yeah, that's uh, that's what we do. Kate, you're nodding along there. Something you agree with? Are you seeing that too? Oh, yeah, I've seen. I've been in the industry for 16 years. I've seen it quite often. You've both been, I mean, it sounds like, I think, Jill, you said you started up about 16 years ago, 17 years ago. Kate, you've been in the industry 16. How have you seen it change in terms of what's being offered for for, for apprenticeship apprentices, um, the regulation, the training provider point of view, all of these sorts of things. How have you seen it changed? It's changed hugely. I mean, when, when I first joined, um, I was originally at an organisation called Hospitality Plus, which was um, inspected. There was no offset in those days. We had the adult learning inspectorate, which everybody else on this call is way too young to remember. But that was the, that was the regime and the funding was via um, training enterprise councils dotted around the country. We had 30 some odd different contracts that were all run slightly differently. Um, and then we had movements towards, um, there, were, there were no English maths in apprenticeships at that stage. To put it bluntly, they were kind of a mixed bag of lots of different qualifications um, that were all lumped together and called an apprenticeship. Um, there was no minimum length of stay on those apprenticeships. There was no um, requirement for X percentage of time to be spent off the job training. Um, the funding was for 16 to 18 year olds was fully funded and everything else required a contribution from employers. So that's very different today. Today, the apprenticeship levy will cover the entire cost of the apprenticeship. If you're a non-levy payer, then uh, quite often you can get a funding transfer to pay for your entire cost. And if you can't, your your cost is only 5% of the total cost of the provision. So that, that makes it much more accessible for employers. Um, the 20% off the job training. And you know, so it's a bit of a strange um, way of explaining it because it doesn't really mean off the job training. It can be whilst you're at work, um, but away from your normal day-to-day workplace, um, workspace rather. So for example, if you're actually, uh, uh, you're in the workplace, but you, you've, you've been given time to go and do some 
do some additional um, study, that counts towards your off-the-job training. You don't actually have to be off off-site and I think there's a lot of confusion around that for employers so that's one of the big changes and then of course you know f- functional skills has been reformed again uh, just a few years ago during um, was it just before lockdown I think something like 20, 2020 um, and uh, every time there's a change it it, it, um, it causes a little bit of disruption for everyone I think we're still seeing some of that from functional skills but maybe we can pick that up later. Let's move over then to to quality control, shall we? Um, Ofsted and Paul, welcome, Richard. Uh, Paul, to you first. Plenty of challenges for the sector in recent years, the pandemic, the rising cost of living, Brexit, skills shortage, all that sort of thing. How would you assess the state of our training providers? Uh, Hi, Georgie. Thanks for uh, inviting us along. Uh, Great question. Uh, They've certainly had their fair share of uh, of challenges, um, particularly with the pandemic. Uh, with funding, with changes to the levy uh, and all sorts of changes around uh, assessment. And Georgie, we're certainly seeing on our inspections um, some challenging times at the moment with staff retention, recruitment, um, difficulties with employers being able to recruit apprentices uh, and some younger apprentices leaving their apprenticeships early um, as they can uh, can often go and uh, go and earn more elsewhere at the moment. So, lots of challenges, but by and large, the sector is pretty resilient, pretty stable, uh, and certainly from our perspective as an inspectorate, uh, is generally pretty good. Um, we've got lots and lots of apprenticeship providers that deliver a really good experience for students. Um, enable them to progress, uh, as Jill and Kate have said, into long-term careers. It provides uh, exactly the sort of training that employers want, and that's really nice and really pleasing to see. Georgie, obviously, we do see the other end of the scale where we've Mm. got some training providers that don't do um, quite what they need to do, Uh, and obviously our job is to... um, inspect and grade those and report so learners, parents and employers can see what they're sending their children or employees to. Well, if you would walk me through the process then of how you would assess a training provider, what makes a a good one, what makes a sadly not so good one, what what, what are the key indicators, what are you looking out for? Georgie, I I think Jill and Kate have done a lot of our job there. I mean, in terms of what they've described, um, that's that's the sort of thing that makes a good training provider. Um, Our inspections, we have an inspection framework, as your listeners would would probably expect, that's available to, to training providers and anybody to look at. We, we are solely interested in the quality of education and training and the apprentice's experience. Uh, but we're interested in that in the round. So we're looking at how well the providers you know, develop apprentices, knowledge, skills and behaviours relative to the, the work they're doing or the employment field they're in, but also more broadly in preparing, you know, younger adults for um, uh, for, for the world of work, uh, for encouraging them to become, you know, better, more active citizens, we're really looking at the quality of that training in the round. So, 
rather than going through all the inspection framework and all the criteria that we have, probably, Georgie, the best thing to say is training providers that are really focused on giving students a good deal and delivering what employers want they fare very well with us in inspection. Um, Richard, what happens to a training provider that doesn't quite make the mark? What's the process there? Well, when we when we finish the inspection and we've we've proposed a provisional grade, all that uh, all the inspection evidence and in the report goes through uh, several uh, processes in, internally at Ofsted for quality assurance to make sure we've got it right. Um, once that report's published. Um, we've then got uh, different mechanisms that kick in uh, depending on the grade that we judge the provider to be. So uh, if a provider is judged to be uh, requires improvement, that's a grade three, uh, we're going to come back within within 12 to 30 months from the publication of the report. But we're going to we're going to turn up and do a monitoring visit uh, in, in uh, normally within six to 13 months of the publication of the report because we want to see how things are getting on. We, leave some, we have recommendations for improvement in, in, in inspection reports and we want to see how they're getting on towards achieving those, uh, those improvements. If we find a provider to be uh, inadequate, that's grade four, then obviously we're going to come back much sooner and we're going to put in, uh, we usually put in more monitoring visits to check the progress towards um, get, getting uh, high quality education and training in place. Um, and those timelines, uh, you know, they're set out in the handbook. They're not secret. Um, we, you know, we, we are very open about them. Um, and we, we, we do make sure that we nuance them to, to the sort of provider, what the provider's doing, the length of the apprenticeships, all that sort of thing, as long as we're working within our um, within those the timescales that we set out. But of course, what you do have to remember is uh, we come in and we grade. There are various other bodies and agencies and government departments that are interested in those grades. And sometimes they take actions that are outside of our uh, jurisdiction as a result of the uh, as a result of the inspection judgments that we make. How is that feedback delivered? The feedback feedback happens right the way through an inspection. Um, Our deep dive methodology, which is the way we go and collect evidence, um, the way that's set up, the way that was designed is that we work with. Um, a leader or a manager from the provider while we're out there with our, while, our, while our inspectors are out there inspecting. So they see what we see. And therefore, there's conversations that go on after each inspection activity between the, inspe- the individual inspector and their link curriculum, subject, link manager, whatever their job title is. Um, we then have team meetings each day where, uh, where inspectors come around the table and they feedback the key points that they've that uh, of, of evidence that they've seen during the day. So the all important nominee, the person in the in the um, in the training provider or in the the, the, the organisation we're inspecting, uh, hears all of that. They should have heard all of that from through the deep dives through their link managers, and so the feedback sort of builds over time during the inspection. So that when we we've made our final judgments, they shouldn't come as a surprise. The nominee is in all of our team meetings. Here's that feedback. Develop all week is able to ask questions and challenge us and, uh, and direct us to, to other sources of evidence and, and other activities. Uh, once we've made our judgments, we've done made the um, we've decided on our provisional gradings. We go away and write the report, and obviously the report is what ends up in the public domain. The provider gets to see that report before publication to comment on its uh, factual accuracy, so they know what's coming. 
Um, then the public, then the publication of the report happens. It's published on our website, and that's when uh, other processes then kick in into that I described earlier around uh, around grade three and grade four providers. The feedback is an iterative process during the inspection, as well as something that's formal at the end and in a published report. And Georgie, just to give you a bit of lived experience on that, because that absolutely is the case. Um, inspections depend on depending on the size of the organisation can be longer or shorter, but it's a very grown up process. There's no, it's very professional, very grown up. You have plenty of opportunity to feedback where you think potentially an inspector may have missed the point or perhaps not picked something up. Equally. Um, the inspectors will give us every day very thorough feedback on what they've what they've seen and what they believe the possible conclusions might they might be coming to from what they're seeing at the moment, and that can give the provider the opportunity to to perhaps the next day say, well, actually, you know, it looks like you're not getting the the, the whole proposition here. We'd like you to come to this place or we'd like you to speak to this employer or to this loan just so that we can make sure that between us we work together to get a really balanced picture of the provider so that's um it, it's a re- it is a very positive experience that's good to hear i'm curious does it make a difference i think richard you said that you do try and tailor it to different i suppose industries but would it make a difference that you know Jill's working in hospitality and catering, Kate's in electrical. I mean, is there or is it the same framework regardless? So it is the same framework, um, Georgie. It's a, it's a pretty flexible framework. Uh, and I appreciate um, Jill's comments earlier. Uh, and after visiting um, HITS training five times, Jill has, I know, a lot of experience in that. <laughs> um, but it what what we do, although it's a it's a standard framework with the same criteria for the grades that we award, um, this is about, as Richard has said, it's about professional discussion, professional dialogue. So the composition of our inspection teams um, is what we tailor. So for example, when we go to hit training, um, I am very likely to send people with experience and expertise within the hospitality sector uh, if we go to visit or when we go to visit um, Kate and her colleagues we're likely to have somebody f- with an electrical or a construction background on the team so that won't be all inspectors having that experience jo- uh, uh, Georgie but there there will be some relevant sector experience or expertise but the key thing as Jill has said it's professional discussion it's professional dialogue our inspectors are there for three, four, five days, depending on on the size of the provider. It's a relatively short time to have to do a lot of work to look at how well leaders and managers plan the programmes, how well the teachers and trainers deliver, um, how well communication works between employers and the provider. So there's a lot to do. And we do rely, as Richard said, on the provider's nominee to help us understand how those different training providers work. Uh, And on the whole, as I say, I'm very pleased to say it it works really well. It's a positive experience. It provides some good uh, reassuring feedback to providers to endorse their own internal QA systems and does end up with some good recommendations for improvement. Does the quality of training come down to people or processes? 
Well, uh, that's a good one. Um, I think it's a it's it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, systems and processes obviously have their place, uh, and good, well-designed systems and processes do help. There, there's no doubt about that. So, if you've got good MIS systems, if you've got robust systems for tracking and monitoring learners' progress, undoubtedly that helps uh, and we find that in good providers. Um, Georgie, I think it does primarily come down to the people and I would hope Jill and, and Kate would agree, you know, if, if you have got dual professionals that are not only experienced and have expertise in the subject that they are teaching, but also are expert teachers and trainers, that makes a real, real difference. And we certainly see on inspection the difference where you have really experienced vocational uh, expertise, but where the teaching or training expertise is somewhat lacking. It's not such a positive experience for the apprentices. Mm, both Jill and Kate nodding along there. Um, Paul, you worked in further education. How did you view assessments from the other side of the fence? Wow, Georgie, that was a very, very long time ago. Jill's <laughs> lovely. Um, Jill was very kind earlier, saying nobody was old enough to remember the adult learning inspectorate. I actually was an adult learning inspectorate <laughs> inspector. Um, so that's how far back I go, Jill. Um, Georgie, things have changed in terms of assessment quite significantly. You've heard Kate and Jill talk about frameworks as opposed to standards. Uh, so frameworks, as well as lots of further education courses when I was in college, were primarily assessed by the teachers or trainers that delivered the course. Things have moved on considerably, and there's an awful lot more external assessment, endpoint assessment, whatever it's called. So, you know, exams similar to what listeners will, you know, will be familiar with, with, with GCSEs and, and A-levels. So there's lots more of that type of activity now that's made it more rigorous, more challenging. Um, so things very, very different now. Jill, you also run the Executive Development Network, uh, which delivers apprenticeships for management and leadership more generally. How does that and that process of training differ from your work in the hospitality sector? Oh, heavens. I mean, even within the hospitality sector, they're all different. Um, and they're all built to fit the demand and the need, really. Um, so if you think about um, our brewing programme, then we do that with, we have partners at the University in Nottingham um, and people go away for two or three day workshops to do some of the, sort of the chemistry bits of it that are harder to do um, in their workplace. Uh, if you look at our chef programmes, then we have uh, we have online deliveries, but most of our delivery is face-to-face -face and in workshops because it's such hands-on stuff. Um, if you're looking at Level 5 Operation Departmental Manager, which is part of the EDN offer, then, then you're looking at a different sort of people. Um, these, these are Some of our clients want closed cohorts, and they will want very specific training that's blended within um, the programme. A lot of our um, clients are smaller organisations who don't have enough people to have a closed cohort of learners. So they'll be in a mixed cohort 
which is our preference because that means that they all get to learn from each other as well. That, that peer-to-peer peer learning is, is a fantastic thing. So it, they're all so different, um, but the, fundamentally the, the processes are the same. You, we still spend the time with the employer understanding what, what the problem is they're trying to fix, what it is that they need for their business, full training needs analysis, and help them to put that program together. So it's broadly the same process, but, but they all look very, very different. Actually, okay. to be fair as well, I was going to say Georgie's, sorry, but you know, also they can look quite different for individuals too. So you might have two people in the same work environment who are each doing a, a level, take the level five operation departmental manager. So that's quite a senior leadership role. It's a, a, a foundation degree level. Um, but because of their backgrounds and because of their precise roles, then then they may have differences in the delivery. They might have some prior learning that we need to recognise that that means that we're not teaching them something they already know, which would be a form of madness. Um, but but equally, they may have some of them might have learning challenges that we have to take into account. Um, they may have a learning preference that perhaps we have some people who just don't work very well across computer screens. Um, so we, we recognise that we do a we, we do a learning assessment with those people and just find out what's going to work best for them. So it might be that there's two of you working next to each other in the office, and you're on the same program with the same organisation, but one of you might need extra time, one of you might need it be delivered in a completely different way to the other. So it's not just program to program that it changes it, or from employer to employer. It's human to human. So that's our first approach: is first see the human. And, and then develop the programme for them. Kate, finally to you, uh, a broad question, but are you excited about the future for apprenticeships oh, and training providers? Yeah, absolutely. Apprenticeships will never go away. Um, I wouldn't be in this industry if it wasn't. I always say to do this... To do this role, not my particular role, but in apprenticeships, you've got to have the learner at the heart of everything you do because it is, you know, compared to other uh, educational establishments, apprenticeships is hard. It, it's a challenging world and um, it, it is exciting. I've had the best 16 years um, and hope it continues. <laughs> but, I, yeah. I, said it was, I said it was finally, but I do want to ask you, Paul, um, who checks the quality control of the quality controllers? Geordie, <laughs> um, very, very good question. So Richard has already outlined internally, we have lots and lots of quality assurance and moderation processes that, that, that do take place. Uh, I am very pleased to say that um, in very, very rare circumstances um, where providers are unhappy we do have a complaints process, um, so we will investigate complaints. And if providers are still unhappy, um, there is an adjudication process um, after that. Uh, fortunately, those cases where that happens are very, very rare. Right. That's it. Thank you very much to Kate, Jill, Richard and Paul and to you for listening to this episode of All About Apprenticeships. If you want to get in touch to have your say on anything we've been talking about today, you can find more on Check Trade's new Apprenticeship and Skills channel about apprenticeships.com. And if you're engaging on social, just use the hashtag All About Apprenticeships. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating and hit subscribe. It helps other people find us. Bye.